Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 152 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. I am super excited to introduce you to today's guest. And it's not just because her last name is Larson, although that does make it a little bit more cool. But I have to tell you, Nanette Larson is an amazing woman. Her grief journey started decades ago with the death of her son. But what she has gone on to do is quite amazing. You know, this is quite high praise, but as all of my regular listeners know, I love Gwen Capsha. I feel like Gwen knows more about grief than anyone I have ever met in my life. Gwen was there from the first days after losing Andy and over the years has become a good friend and has taught me so much about grief. I would put Nanette on the same playing field as Gwen. I feel like they both know so much about grief. I could talk to Nanette for hours and hours and just glean information from her. So I know you are going to absolutely love listening to her today. And it may be that I'll have to have her back at some point in the future because I just feel like she has so, so, so much to offer. So I know you're going to really enjoy listening to Nanette, Eric's mom. Thank you so much, Nanette, for coming on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to have you on. So we have another Larson on, kind of a Dr. Larson. We can give you an honorary doctorate. You are uh, you have your master's degree in in a licensed psychotherapist. You said, but the coolest thing about you is the fact that your son's name was Eric Larson, the name of my husband. I feel like this whole conversation was completely meant to be only because of Eric Larson and Eric Larson. What are the chances of that? (laughs) And you know, what's funny is that I did not know a lot about Nanette's story. We were introduced by a mutual friend who said she will be great, great on your podcast. And we've spoken for 10 minutes before starting recording. And I can tell you, she's going to be great on the podcast. So welcome, Nanette. Thank you so much. So, so glad to be here. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, why don't we start out by talking about your little baby, Eric Larson? Eric was my only son. And he, it was 35 years ago. I never in my life, like most mothers, experienced that kind of love. I, I, I yeah. never, nothing in the world was like it. 
it was, I don't know, something beyond joy. Yeah. And he had problems at birth, but they seemed to be getting better. And I had six months with him. Yeah. He died SIDS, uh, sudden infant death syndrome, actually at the babysitters. Wow. The morning before I took him to the babysitter, I I remember just staring at him and, and saying, I love you so much. And afterwards, I was so glad that that was the last thing I ever said to him. Mm-hmm. Of course, when I found out by telephone that he had stopped breathing, which is what the babysitter said, I certainly liked most of us that well, okay, but has he started breathing again? Right, right. I, I, we don't take it as, you know, this person's died. It's just like, this is what's happened. And, and now what are we going to do about it, right? Right. Then there were wonderful people. I was very, very fortunate to have wonderful people around, a nurse that lived close by that came to help, and then calling on my family when we went to the hospital. And actually... Something at the hospital was interesting, too. I immediately wanted to find someone that knew what it was like to have a baby die. Yeah. And I asked. I asked, you know, the med- medical people, is there someone that's had a baby die? Well, a nurse came and she said, I haven't had a baby die. But my mother had five babies die before I was born. Mm-hmm. And it would gave me some kind of hope and courage yeah. that her mother had been able to deal with this horrendous pain five times and didn't give up. And here was this wonderful person standing in front right. of me that survived. I think it, it was the best thing I could have heard at the time. Right. It just gave me hope or human resilience or something, you know. And then I just wondered in what I now call the wilderness for many, 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 many months. Yeah. And ended up going back to graduate school mm-hmm. because I wanted to, well, actually, that was another story. I went to a therapist. Right. Yeah. You went to a therapist. Who wouldn't let me talk about my son. Yeah. She kept changing the subject. She had young children herself. So it was very scary for her, I'm sure, to listen to me talking about my son, Don. And so I just took her to lunch and said, would you tell me how to become a therapist? I mean, if she had been a good therapist that knew about grief, maybe I would never have gone back to graduate school and become a therapist. Isn't that funny? That it was just because you had someone that was so ill-equipped to handle it that it made you think, okay, maybe I could do this. I could probably do better than her. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Know that it just happens. In fact, the woman I went to to look at graduate schools, I went with another woman who was also looking at graduate schools. And at some point I talked to her about my th- my son and she just totally stopped talking for like 10 miles, 15 miles home. Uh, I thought, oh shoot, I shouldn't have brought it up. Right. And then when she got out of the car, she said, well, I've never told anybody this before, but my brother died when I was a child. So what it did was my being able to talk about grief, which is still a very hard thing for people to do because the world out there doesn't understand. It allowed her 
to finally talk about this grief that has sat in her for like 30 years. Wow. So, you know, the world, the, the world so needs to talk about grief. It so needs to know about, I mean, it's been my passion ever since. Yeah. I ended up going to graduate school. I ended up ending up in a place that halfway through my program, they started a grief specialization. I was the first graduate of that program. Oh my goodness. Everything I've done has been like, no, we can't do this or, you know, and then finally finding a, in the inner city, getting a job. And the teachers were asking for a grief specialist because so many people have been killed on campus. I mean, and it, it, it's horrible yeah. in the inner city. I went in the second year, second grade classroom, asked if anybody to raise their hand who had someone they loved die and they all raised their hands. Wow. And then I asked them my grief question, do any of you feel like it was your fault that they died? And they all raised their hands. In fact, a little boy, I asked him, well, why do you think it was your fault? And he said, because my cousin was born on my birthday. And in his little mind, there wasn't room for two people to be born on the same day. He didn't have enough life experience to know that there are millions of people and lots of people have the same birthday. And so he thought that his cousin had died because he already had that birthday. And I was able to reality test with him that there were more than 365 people in the world uh, that have. And and so the birthdays get shared. But that was one of the most powerful things I ever did because I think I had like 30 kids stop feeling guilty so I didn't have to feel it the rest of their life, which becomes all kinds of psychological problems. So anyhow, I went way beyond Eric. Eric was very, very sweet. And there's a hole in my heart. And he's always in my little, little hole. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, it's amazing what, you know, those horrible things that happen can end up turning into something beautiful and productive. It's hard to envision that right away, but it can be a beautiful thing. I mean, obviously, I would have never done the podcast. I would have never met the wonderful, amazing people I've met over these last four years had Andy not died I'd take him back in a second yes in a second I would yes and give it all up but but because I can't I'm glad I can meet amazing people doing amazing work yes yes no same thing I my work has been my passion and it hasn't stopped being my passion for 35 years but I would take him in exchange in a heartbeat So you talked about seeing that guilt in all of those kids. Do you feel like that is just something that you see universally? Absolutely universal. Um, I've probably worked with about a thousand people in grief now, and I have yet to meet someone that doesn't get stuck in some aspect of of guilt. Mm -hmm. I call it ooey gooey guilt. It's the stickiest thing. It gets us stuck. It even comes in various ways. Every week I hear another version of the guilt, another layer of the guilt. And then when someone finally starts going back in life and getting their energy back and being able to be more than the grieving mom, I mean, I remember 
when I it took me about four years to stop my identity being the grieving mom. And I got to be more than that. Mm-hmm. And when we get to a place where we're not grieving as much, we're not in pain every day, then we feel guilty again. Yeah. You know, this <laughs> it's like it's like layer and layer and layer. There it is again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. It is just an overwhelming thing. And it's so funny because everyone just tells you that it's kind of silly that you shouldn't feel guilty. There's no reason for you to feel guilty. And and that does not help. Yeah. Yeah. I I I have to admit, probably for a year or so, I don't know way back, I would tell people they shouldn't feel guilty because, because I knew it got people stuck. And I thought, wait a minute, you cannot tell people not to feel their feelings. The most important right? thing in get grief is to feel our feelings and let them move through us. It's not to hold on to them. But if we don't feel them, they'll be stuck. That's why we have to feel these yucky feelings we wish we didn't have to feel. But you know, the pain is the healing. And feeling the feelings is the healing. I wish it was otherwise. I have never found it to be otherwise. And what we want to do is move through it so we can let it move on and not get stuck in us. Yeah. And that's, I think, a lot of our fears is getting stuck. I mean, we see people that are stuck. And then I think, I don't want to be that person. How do I keep from being that person? And you know, I think it's extra hard because people don't know what stuck grief looks like right mm-hmm. you know and we have this new diagnosis that came out of yeah prolonged grief <laughs> which yeah. i have two feelings about <laughs> i yeah i want to know what your feelings are about it actually i've got some kind of strong feelings about oh, it yeah. i had strong i mean my first strong feelings are no <laughs> yeah but my my second strong feeling was oh my gosh this is the first time the DSM-4, which is a diagnostic or five, six or whatever they're doing now, yeah, is a diagnostic manual that therapists have to use to diagnose mental illness of all kinds, right? So they, mm-hmm. so people can get reimbursement from their insurance company, essentially. Right. And you must have, have, we had some others diagnosis that didn't have the word grief in them that we'd often use, but grief has never been in the book, which is also, first of all, it's not an illness, but it is real and it does have real symptoms. And those symptoms look like a lot of other symptoms. They Mm -hmm. look like depression. They look like anxiety. They look like so many things. They can even look like OCD because we want to control things. They look like many things. The thing is to separate the grief from these other diagnoses. And it is true that if we don't deal with our grief, if we don't work through it and process, it's something that has to be processed. If we don't do that and it gets stuck, it will become anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And then you need to deal with that. And there's often a lot of trauma and trauma gets stuck easily. Trauma almost generically gets stuck it's a stuck thing right and there are ways we can process that trauma that then allow us to do the grief that we need to do but 
grief is a real thing. I'm glad they've said grief is a real thing. That right. part I like. <laughs> right. I do too. But the fact that they said six months to a year, no. <laughs> right. And if you're and if it's outside of that, then there's something super wrong with yeah. you. That I don't like. It's wrong. You know, right. um, most of the grief leaders in America that had some tried to have some input on this really thought it. We're really not happy. When first they came up with six months and they said, nope, nope, no, we're not going to prove that. Right. And it was a compromise to say 12 months. But we all know that have been through major grief, especially the loss of a child, knows there's there's millions of changes and feelings to get through. How could mm-hmm. you do that in a year? You can't. <laughs> it's too much. It's like it's almost like every cell in our body has to change. Our personality has to change. Our priorities change. Meaning in life becomes a big deal. We have to reinvestigate all of that. Who are we? We have to forgive ourselves for being powerless and imperfect parents, which are supposed to protect our children. We're all imperfect parents. I have never, ever met a perfect parent. It's simply something that wasn't built in our genetic code. <laughs> we don't yeah. have that ability. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, ask me another question. <laughs> no, I no, I just want to go on about that a little bit because I do I, I agree with you. The year thing was what really bothered me the most. I do like that they are acknowledging that this is a big problem and people need help with it. And if now making a diagnosis so people can get their therapy covered by their insurance plan and things like that, if that will help with that, great. But when they do things like you should be, you know, kind of be better at a year and put those time limits on things, well, that's going to make people feel even worse. Because yes, for the most part, most bereaved parents I've talked to, especially bereaved moms I've talked to, have said to me that after the first year, in many ways, things were kind of worse. Because you go through the first birthday, the first this, the first Christmas, the first anniversary, all of this first, and you expect it to be horrible. And then you get to the second and you think, okay, things are going to be better. And more importantly, everyone around you thinks, well, she's been through this one time, so it's all going to be easier now. So the support system isn't there as much. And that actually means it can be harder. So like you just barely were able to breathe through the first Christmas. Now the second Christmas, your family wants you to show up. They want you to put up a Christmas tree. They want you to do a little bit more normal stuff. Well, that's about impossible for a lot of people, for me, for sure. And so when they make this diagnosis and put this year thing on it, that is just going to increase the guilt even more. And we already talked about how guilt is huge. Yeah. Yeah, it's it it's why it's why the whole world needs to be educated about healthy grief. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this this doesn't doesn't help the education, you know, because people already I know I I hate the the stages of grief, right? Because it's inaccurate. Yeah. It was about oh, I hate that too. Death and dying. It wasn't about grief to begin with, and and it's been cemented. You know, it's in tests when you get your degrees. Mm-hmm. And it's incorrect. There's actually a cycle of grief and we go 
through it numerous times and, and grief is like a, a wave. It does all these things and it's different for everyone, right? We get triggered by different things. We are changing in different ways. Mm-hmm. We just, it's a, if it wasn't so painful, which it is, mm-hmm. and there's no way to get around that, it's an exploration. Mm-hmm. We go into what I call the wilderness from yeah. what we call the old normal. And in that wilderness, we have to learn to trust ourselves. There are few guideposts. And when I do therapy with people, it's to help them see those guideposts so they go, yeah. they continue on the journey instead of get stuck somewhere and go way off in the wrong direction that doesn't lead them through. But in the wilderness, we don't even know who we are. That's how profound and deep it is to, I mean, grief in general, but definitely the loss of a child. It makes us question how the world works. Yes. Yeah. And that ever present word, why, you know, that if I could extract it from the vocabulary and throw it in the garbage, I would. You can't. You can't. And it's just there. It's just there. <laughs> I can't. It's ever present. When I worked with kids, that, that was their absolute number one question about everything. And as adults, we have the same question, except as adults, we think we should be able to figure out why. Mm-hmm. Right? Because we should have that kind of power. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. And we don't. You know, people get little bits and pieces of why they get a diagnosis that, you know, says, well, this is what the brain was doing or they get, you know, whatever. But none of it tells us why did it happen to me? Why did it happen to my child? No. The world in many ways doesn't make that kind of sense. So we end up having to find a new world with a new sense, you know, new meaning. And I'm glad you brought up that trust thing because that has been huge for me and I know it's huge for a lot of people is that when you have a child die, you know, whether it's trust in God or trust in the universe or trust in the way that the world should be, it's gone. The trust is gone. Parents are supposed to outlive their children, period. And when it doesn't happen like that, you start to question so much and just not trust anything. Right, right. And it's funny that it, it puts itself out in other directions, but it does, right? I don't trust that. I don't trust that for sure that I'm going to be able to go somewhere next week, right? Right. I don't know that. No. I had the worst most horrible thing happened just on our way to a baseball game. You know, we get in a car accident. My son's killed. I can't promise you I'm going to be somewhere next week because I could just die. And when you've had that happen to you, that trust that things are going to work out is just gone. We have to find a way to live with not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. And, yes. and that's, that's a huge challenge for human beings. Mm-hmm. Grief does, it's so powerful. It brings out truth. You know, we don't take bull anymore. We just don't take bull anymore, right? <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> no. Which is wonderful, actually. 
and we do a lot of, well, how does the world work and why does it work this way? And with those questions that can't be answered, we, well, how can I live with not knowing, right? Right. Because that becomes a really big question. What can I do that helps me live with not knowing? Mm-hmm. You know, years after my son died, I got cancer twice. And then recently, of course, there's been COVID, the, the great unknown. Right. <laughs> continuing yeah. to be great unknown. <laughs> and by the way, old grief that hasn't been processed gets, I call it the grief closet. We stuff it in the closet if we can't deal with it. And the closet opens up with every new grief. We try to stuff new grief yeah. in there and it all falls out on top of us. So we're not only dealing with the new trauma or grief we're dealing with the old stuff as well it it's funny that you brought that up because it was just in the last few weeks I was talking with my therapist and my therapist said I just want to talk to you about what what we want to do now because I think there's a lot of messiness back from when your mom died that you never really cleaned up she said I think maybe we need to start there and clean a little bit of that up because we'd been working a lot on Andy and, but you know, I lost my mom when I was young, I was in college and she died of cancer and, and she's right. I mean, there was a lot of messiness there that was never cleaned up. I wasn't in a real healthy grieving family at that time. And you didn't have support, right? No, no, you just didn't talk about it. Right. You didn't talk about it. So I just had all of those years of not talking about it. And so then when Andy did die, I really thought I was much more prepared than Eric because I've been through this before. But it turns out I didn't do it well the first time. You didn't have a chance (laughs) to do it. It got mostly stuffed in the closet, right? It got mostly stuffed. Like I was in college and my dad got pretty quickly remarried and, you know, we didn't talk about my mom. Yeah. There are a few people I can talk to my mom about, but a lot I can't. And that's not healthy, not great. And it, and it turns out it's not helped me now. Yeah. So things are even messier. Not talking about (laughs) things for a variety of reasons, because the person that you're trying to talk to can't is afraid to handle it right or afraid to upset you or whatever and as a young adult see the developmental stages make a real difference in terms of our grief and the processing of our grief and in fact each new developmental stage we have to reprocess it Mm -hmm. and so as a teenager you're pulling away from the family that's your job right you go to college you start your own life right And there's this sort of loyalty thing that comes up or this, you know, abandonment thing that can come up just naturally, right? Or the disconnect. I'm not part of that family actively right now, but oh my God, I love her and miss her. So, you know, and and it not being acknowledged, right? Nobody's, you know, in fact, your father acknowledging, not acknowledging it, I'll just replace it. I'll find someone else, right? (laughs) Right, right. I mean, I... He just didn't know how to do it. I mean, I'm not. Exactly. Like, exactly. Judging him on it. It's just. Bad people. Exactly. <laughs> right. They just don't know. Yeah. They just don't know. Yeah. But it was, 
I was glad my therapist did that because she's, she's probably been thinking it for a while. Let's just be honest. But finally to be able to go, so what are you thinking you want to do right now? Because I'm thinking there's a lot that we need to kind of work through that's old. And and she's 100% right, uh, but I needed to be there. There's a great book called The Grief Recovery Handbook. Mm-hmm. And it's still in print. It's been in print for 25 years. I guess they also do workshops or something, but it talks about making a loss history graph, which would be a great thing to mm-hmm. do. So you yeah. graph out all the years of your life and the major losses and the significance of those losses. And the two writers go through their own as example in doing it. And it, it has basic information about grief and then how to go through this process because it really gets you to have a chance to honor those losses that kind of got shoved away. Mm-hmm. Or, oh my gosh, that's why things were so hard at that time. Because, you know, all this stuff happened and uh, et cetera. So it's a great, great book. You said something earlier before we started recording that I really want you to say again. And that was when you talked about the uniqueness of child loss and the feelings that parents have really kind of a responsibility and things like that. So I'd, I'd love for you to tell the audience kind of that, what you had said earlier. You know, thank you for asking. You know, after working with about a thousand people with all different kinds of losses, child loss, it's not only because I had a child loss, but it it's, it's a unique thing, especially the mother, it probably is so for the father, but it's different. We haven't studied it enough. These beings are part of our life, part of our body. I mean, right. that's huge. There is something organic that, that, you, that simply exists there. And uh, on top of that, all parents have two main goals, love and protect their children. Everything else is secondary. Those are the two things that parents are tasked to do with their children and to not be able to keep them alive. It's like, but that's my job. That's my job. How could that be taken away from me? And how could I have no power to do anything over that? There's also forever a hole in our heart. It's literally inside of us. I don't know how else to describe it. I don't know how you would describe it, but there's Mm -hmm. actual there's an actual hole there. If we could take an x-ray, yeah. there, there would be a hole. Just a piece is just missing. A piece yeah. is missing. A piece of our body, a piece of our psyche, a piece of our energy. There's there's literally something missing from our body. And and so there is nothing. It, it hurts so much. In fact, the, the man who helped Cooper Ross write about grief before she died. She was the person who wrote about death and dying. Just re- wrote a new book, Kessler is his name, and he wrote the five stages of grief. I still wish he didn't use that term, meaning making. <laughs> and he even says it has problems with it. it, does, but he still didn't change it. But his son died partway into his publishing that book. And when he's been out talking this last year, he said, I hadn't a clue for all, he's like one of the, known experts in grief, I -hmm. had no idea how painful it was. He said, I could never have imagined how painful it was. 
And yeah. I trust him much more after he said that. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, he now knows, you know, some of my clients come to see me because they know I know, you know. Yeah. There really isn't any way to know unless somebody's been through it. And and I don't want anybody to have to know. No. But it is unique in that way. It's funny. I was in a book group with bereaved women. So there were some widows and more bereaved moms, actually, but bereaved moms and then a few widows. And we were reading a book that was written by someone sort of local in the Michigan area about grief and death. And we got halfway through and we quit. We just could not read it anymore because you could very much tell that the person that wrote the book had never been bereaved. They were writing about going to Africa and working with kids who had lost their parents and whatever. And they would say stuff and like, that's just not right. That's just not right. That is somebody looking from the outside and not seeing what it really feels like. And when we had, you know, this group of bereaved women, we would go, you know, chapter by chapter. And then finally we hit, I can't remember which chapter. I'm like, you know what? We're done. We are done with this book. And we did not read anymore I don't I think I threw it in the trash because it just it I don't know you need someone that really really understands and you can tell when they don't yes and and your radar is precise you know that's why trusting yourself is so important right we don't take bull we've been at the bottom we we know what it looks like down there and some you know cute little blah 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 <laughs> that's going right. to you know work just it's like no you don't know yeah because that was it was a book on like how to fix yourself you know I don't I can't remember because now it's been a few years but the other thing that was good is that we did it as a group and so I would have these things and be like that just doesn't seem right you know and I'd kind of circle it and then we talk about it and then we're all realizing yeah that doesn't seem right because that isn't right. But when you're you're reading it just yourself, you could start to think, oh, I guess I messed yes. up. I mean, yes. she published a book. Yes. So Th- she clearly knows. I don't know. I There's something wrong with me. So it was nice to do it in community to be able to kind of call them out on like, yeah, that's just not right. It is so important, even though we're in the wilderness and we don't know. It's okay to not know, but to right. keep trusting ourselves. What feels yeah. right? What makes me, we know what feels right. Our body tells us what feels right. We, yeah. we need to trust that above anything else. You know, uh, yeah. Our bull, our bull, <laughs> banana, <laughs> what do you, I can't say the words together, but barometer, our bull barometer, that's very hard to say. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's hard to say. I'm not even going to try to repeat it. Needs to be up there, right? And, right. You know, yes, we do, because we get so much misinformation from the outside world. We get so much, including this new diagnosis, you know. It, yeah, it has the right. time frame wrong. It has that some of the symptoms, right? But it tells you yeah. there's something wrong with you. And people in grief, I shouldn't be depressed. I shouldn't, you know, that word shouldn't yeah. also needs to be thrown in the garbage can. Yeah. 
That's what Gwen, who always comes on my show, she always says, do not should yourself. Yes. Don't should yourself. Yes, it is. We're dumping on ourselves, you know? Yeah. You have uh, to like take that world out of your vocabulary. And I tell, I tell kids that. So I, I, you know, I'm a pediatrician, so I see lots of adolescents with anxiety, depression, and they all tell me how they should be feeling. And I always tell them, I do not care how you should be feeling. <laughs> I care about how you are feeling. Yay. How do you feel? Yes. yes. It does not matter to me one bit how you should be. They're feeling. lucky to have you. Maybe just throw that word away. So, and that's what I think all grieving people need to throw that word away. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, it doesn't matter. It yes. doesn't matter. <laughs> yes. Yes. We need to honor our feelings. We need to honor. And, and like you say, community helps hearing what other people, how did they deal with this? What, what was their depression like? What was their anxiety like? What, how, what was their healing like? What did they do? What little rituals they did that, that made them feel more connected, right? And you think people also think that we're disconnected forever from our loved ones, but that's not true. We, we, we have that, we don't have the physical one and there's enormous grief about that. They won't yeah. be here again. And that is tremendous pain, but we're, we can talk to them anytime. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I've got to kind of remember that sometimes, actually. Oh, and it doesn't matter where I go. I can do it anywhere, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Because, because we know more than these people that tell us what we should be doing now. Yeah. I know. I know. But it's hard. It's hard when you are feeling judged and feeling other people's yeah, really that judgment, I think it's difficult. It's really, really hard. And since it's a new thing for most people, it's like, we don't know yet. So it's like, are yeah. what they're saying, right? You know, they're telling me that's yeah. what, you know? And so we don't, we, we try to look to them for answers and don't trust ourselves so much when we're new in it. It makes it even more difficult, right? Like the old mm -hmm. sayings of don't talk about it. Well, that's the worst thing we can do about grief. You know, if other people won't listen, write it down. You know, write a journal and listen to yourself with what you write. Well, and I think that's, that's one thing I love about doing the podcast is I love being able to talk about these things and then know that, that people want to listen, right? It's, I, I can't go and have these conversations with people at work because in general, they don't want to hear it, right? So I don't talk about this there. But with you, with other guests I have on, with the, just the listeners, they want to hear it. And and I want to talk about it. And it's it's just, it's beautiful to be able to do that in a good way, right? And not feel like, gosh, I just can't talk about Andy because that's going to make everybody feel uncomfortable and feel oh, weird right. and whatever. Exactly. It's healing. It's so healing. It, you know, the truth is healing. It's probably the most healing thing in the world, but that commu community and sharing is outrageously healing as well. You said you were a pediatrician and the, the medical community has a, a really hard time because there, there, there's this overlay of guilt when someone dies, and you know, I mean, dealing yeah. with it, you know, that they really need, you know, a whole year of medical school devoted to grief. <laughs> um, 
I remember doing doctor's rounds once and it was so flattering and talking about, I mean, talking about even, is it okay to cry in a quiet bus, you know, or a patient bus. And one doctor had to go out to help a, a C-section for a client. And he came back before the end of the talk because he said, I wanted to come back. <laughs> I wanted to come back and get more information. It was like, you know, such a great uh, honor for him to, you know, quickly come back after the C-section, make sure he heard more about grief or the mm-hmm. or the sound technician at a presentation I did after he was just there to do the sound. Afterwards, he came up to me and he said, oh my gosh, things about my divorce or things about the war finally make sense to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's those kinds of things that just, fuel my love of educating people about healthy grief, you know? You know, so recently I got a letter, a little card from the therapist that used to see Andy, saw Andy years ago when he was in like second grade. He had pretty bad anxiety and he was diagnosed with ADHD. And so we had him in some therapy and he he would even be like afraid to go down in the basement because his anxiety would get so high. And so they did some play therapy. They actually did some EMDR to help him be able to go in the basement. It, it was a lovely therapist. She was very, very nice. Um, and I got a card from her just in the last little bit because I was doing this presentation for medical professionals and she was kind of wanting to go, but she didn't know if it would make me uncomfortable to be here. And she said, when Andy died, I so wanted to go to his funeral, but I asked people like colleagues if I should go and they said no. And so I didn't. And she said, I regret that to this day. And I wish that I had just trusted my humanity a little bit and gone. I mean, she hadn't seen Andy in years. If anyone had asked how she knew Andy, she could have said anything. She definitely would not have had to say she was a therapist. She needed to go for herself. And I mean, I'm glad now. So she follows me, I think, peripherally. And that's why she said, if this happens again, I'll trust my humanity. Because it's it's a huge regret. And, it's, and it was from colleagues in the mental health world who said nope that's crossing a line you can't do that you can't go to that little boy's funeral you know it, it's he died in a car accident it's not like he died from his anxiety that she had failed to treat him somehow or whatever whatever right it had nothing to do with anything and there were hundreds of people at this funeral it was you know, it just would have been something for her. But instead, she sort of kind of watched it online and has sort of been following me a little bit, but too afraid to reach out. It's this, <laughs> there's this dual relationship line, you know, for therapists. But grief changes everything. Right. I mean, she's grieving him. She hadn't seen him in years, but she was grieving him. And it was not honoring for her to not do that for herself. Right? Well, how how wonderful that she reached out to you and that yeah. touched your heart. Oh, very much so. I mean, I'm all emotional about it even now. All right, I know. I can feel it, um, which is good. And how how good of her to reach out now. You know, it's actually never too late to grieve. 
And right. it's easier to grieve early on. It's easier to not get stuck in it, right? Uh-huh. And you, there's less problems if we get to grieve sooner rather than... Right. And you get support from other people around you a little bit more. I think. Right, <laughs> right. But I don't think it's ever too late to grieve. Mm-hmm. My father had open heart surgery at 94, 92. And while he was recovering, he was fully cognizant. He'd never talked about his mother's death as a child. And the first time my mother said she always ever saw him cry was when my son died. And I asked him questions about his mother's death and was able to reality test that it wasn't his fault. He was nine years old. He would have had to drive on horseback for 100 miles to get to where she was. The hospital, he would have had no power anyhow at nine years yeah. old and was able to alleviate some of his guilt that he'd held in for 85 years. So it's never too late to grieve. And grief doesn't go anywhere unless we get a chance to process it. But it just makes our lives so much easier when we're able to do it sooner rather than later. By sooner, I don't mean, you know, right away, because sometimes we can't (laughs) grieve at all in the first few months. We're just surviving. Right. You just survive. Yeah. Yeah. But usually people are able to start working on their grief at six months or a year. It's actually... It's so funny. It's this is yeah. Yes. It's like this is when it goes back to that stupid thing on saying that you're supposed to be done in six months to a year when that's really the time when you can finally start. Yes. Or when people say closure, right? Yeah. Closure is a real thing. It's what happens right before you begin to grieve. It's not the end of grief. It's the beginning of grief. When we have closure and know, you know, find out who killed our son or you know, find out that, that he really died or whatever it is, that's when we can start grieving. That is not the end of grief. It is the yeah. beginning of grief. So true. So true. We we had our court for the woman who hit us about 10 and a half months after the accident. I felt like after that day, I could start grieving. Yes. Yes, exactly. And and I've got a friend of mine who is waiting court now, and it's been over a year since her son died. And the court is coming up soon. And I, I keep thinking in my mind, I'm so glad we're going to have this closure. And you can put this person in prison. <laughs> but and then and now she'll be able to start. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly. And I don't think the average person thinks that I think they the average person probably friends of ours because you know we're in some of the same circles so we have some of the same friends I think they will think oh once this is done she can kind of move on but now this is she's been really very stuck I think unable to start grieving until this part is done and when this part is done now the work starts yes that's exactly right and if people don't know that right the guilt again, you know, I got closure. Why aren't I doing better? Right. Or why do I feel even worse? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, So you think about timing wise for me, you know, this happened at the end of June in, in 2019. When was I able to start thinking about doing the podcast and all of that kind of heal? I started to go to a healing mindset a little bit more was after that. 
in August, in September. I Until that point, I was stuck. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. And it wasn't really because I was grieving. It's because I couldn't even start grieving in yes. many ways. Yes, yes, yes. So you have to get to that point. And obviously, I think it's different for different people. And for us, for both my friend and me, we had legal stuff that would stand in the way. That's not always the case, obviously. But there can be a lot of other things that can make it so you can't actually start. Right. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. No, I think even knowing what all the aspects are, not that we all go through the same things in grief or that we all go through at the same time frame. But the different aspects, like to watch out for guilt, to know that that closure is not the end of of grief, to know that there's layer upon layer of grief, that there's there's hundreds and hundreds of changes, like these major ones of change of our identity and et cetera, et cetera. How in the world could you do all that in six months or a year? It's it's yeah. just too much. But we call it grief. Oh, the person's not here anymore. And and that is yeah. the thing that hurts the most. But but yeah. all of the they it's, it's like, wait, let me give you a list of the five hundred things that I have to deal with now. Um yeah. and change. Um and then it becomes like, oh, I guess that would take a lot. That would be right. hard to do, right? I've, t- I've spoken to people recently, too, with the pandemic and unable mm. to have, like, a funeral celebration of life kind of thing, right. that that has that they have not been able to start their grieving until they've been able to do that too. Or there are different things that can kind of be like, you have to be able to do some of those things and like, okay, now I can start. Yes. So I I do want people to start thinking about it that way is that there may be many steps you need to get through before you can say, now I can start grieving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely positively true. And pandemic is well, from the first week, I called world grief. We've never experienced yeah. world grief before, where everyone was grieving at the same time, the entire yeah. planet. So that is also making grief more complex, <laughs> even that in itself. It is making grief more complex because those of us who have lost children are going through other things than everyone I, I think in some ways they're they're great giving us a gr- little more grace goes away right because everyone's going through a hard time so that can be a challenge in that too that people sort of forget that's that's true too you know yeah. we all have less um, focus that we can give someone else right when we're having right. to so focus on our, our, our own process. Right, exactly. You don't have enough left. There's just not enough. To give to other people. Yeah. I, I have felt that a little bit at work sometimes. I yeah. feel like I, I, I'm quite drained myself. And yeah. then to have to keep yeah. giving yeah. can get overwhelming. It's, and then I feel like I don't have anything left in the tank to give. Yes, yes. So I need to try to fill myself up. Yes. So that is a hard thing about grieving in the pandemic, I think, because everyone's ability to give is not quite, you know, at their normal level. Absolutely. Absolutely. You certainly 
see it in in a hospital community, right? Um, oh, with yeah. you know the yeah. nurses and the doctors and everybody just oversaturated, and not only oversaturated with the physical work, which is enough in and of itself, but oversaturated emotionally, right? And you know, yeah. I mean, the whole planet needs a year of rest and relaxation at a spa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like that that's yeah. the kind of planet change i want <laughs> that would be good that with no good, new yeah. stuff coming in that we have to deal with and you know put on our plates to process that would be really nice yeah it's funny my my therapist had told me i had I had some time off of work like a week and a half off of work and like okay you need to do a lot of good self-care and i went and i then I go back to the office and I'm like, how was your vacation? And I said, well, my grandma died. <laughs> like, so my grandmother died and then I had to go. I'm you know, so sorry. The funeral, oh. And I had all this stuff and like, yeah, that was supposed to be my week and a half of self-care. Like, oh. I mean, she lived a long life and, and, uh, but still it, I grieve her, right? Right. I it's a different her. kind of grief, but um, it it's still grief. And, all and it's still draining and it still wasn't things. like a time to that I refilled my you did not get a chance account. to refill no 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 really. no right. no they actually drained the cup a little bit there <laughs> they did that that time I was supposed to be refilling I drained a little bit more but well I, I think it's a big thing finding being able to trust dealing with it myself you know I mean, working for myself, I've been working less because I don't want to be on overload. Right. And it's precious because burnout is a real thing. Mm -hmm. And we get, we have no models for that in our culture, you know. And as well as with grief, I've often told people it's a full-time job. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, when they're exhausted and they're like, oh, my God, I can hardly work. Though a lot of people like to be at work because they get a little reprieve from their grief. It's, it's a full-time job to grieve. It is a full-time job. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's an exhausting thing. It needs to be honored. And that we won't be in that wilderness forever. Our goal is to get to that overused term, new normal. But yeah, it, it's to that the next place, which could be fantastic. We just have to get through that long journey in the, in the wilderness uh, to become that new person. Mm -hmm. Essentially, we're becoming new people. I died when my son died. There's no two ways about it. But I kind of like my new person better than my old person. Yeah. She has more compassion and wisdom. Um, and I don't feel like I did in the wilderness. Yeah. There really is hope. You're not supposed to be in acute grief forever. You are not supposed to be. And it doesn't mean you don't love your child if you don't get stuck that happens yeah. to people too you know i would yes. be in that kind of pain if i'm not then i don't love them that is not true they would not want guaranteed yeah so but it's a long journey you know bring it some is. snacks <laughs> <laughs> bring some snacks get it go to a spa every once in a while <laughs> get a massage i i love my image of the whole world being a spa <laughs> I do too. I do too. I think that's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nanette. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I feel like I could talk to you again and again and again. 
Well, really you're welcome to. Clean more really wisdom. nice, really nice talking with you too. I can I, see now why my friend said you have to have her on. She's one hundred percent right. How sweet. Well, nothing like another Larson, you know. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I should have you on again just for that. All right. Thank you so much. Well, take care. Yes. Thank you for having Bye-bye. me. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful or would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at andysmom.com. Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.